guys are unbelievable. I, I've never seen anything like it. Every time I come back, you've bought a new building, or you've added a new worship service, or, or you've added some new church. It's just crazy. And people are talking about you in California. I, I'm serious. I'm not blowing smoke. People are talking about you, about what God's doing at Mercy Road. And so it is just a tremendous honor to be with you. And as a Southern Californian, I am blown away that this many people came out in the snow. Are you kidding me? I tell you, just the forecast of rain in Southern California will shut the church down. Be like, oh, it might rain a quarter of an inch. We better uh, batten down the hatches and stay home for the weekend. So I'm just uh, very impressed by the toughness of Indianans. Did I say that uh, correctly? And the verse I always think of when I think of Mercy Road is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And I'm serious when I say pastors are talking about you. You guys are legends in California. Now you think, oh, Glenn, you're exaggerating. No, I was driving on the freeway down to downtown L.A. just the other day, and I look up and look what was carved into the mountainside there. They, count it, they call it Mount Mercy Road, and you can see Josh and Lisa and Jillian and Eric. And so there it was carved right next to the Hollywood sign. So uh, how many of you are skeptical that that sign is the real thing or not? Well... Well, today I want to talk for a few minutes about Christianity for skeptics. And if you're here today, if you're listening by podcast or online, and you're a skeptic of Christianity, I'm so glad you're here. And I just, I just honor you for being willing to listen to this material. And, and I don't want to come off as, oh, please forgive me if I, in any way I come off as snarky or arrogant or anything like that. I just, I love you, and God loves you, and I just want people to have all the facts uh, before they make a decision as to who they follow or what they follow. And so if you're an atheist uh, watching this or listening to this, uh, I'm just so honored that you give me a few minutes to just kind of share some evidence, and, and, and I'm just praying that you'll just kind of take it and go in the direction that it leads you to. And I just know, I want you to know my heart is with you, and God's heart is with you, and I'm so glad that you're uh, listening here today, and I hope that in, in some way uh, this is helpful. If anything's not helpful, I hope you'll just forget about it by the time you get to your car, but if anything is helpful, uh, that God will help that to like be a seed in your heart. There's there's this whole idea that followers of Christ are gullible. You know, they'll believe anything. And, uh, and, and that followers of Christ have been gullible and naive from the very beginning. And I just want you to know that is historically absolutely untrue. Nobody was more skeptical of new claims of truth than a Jewish person in the first century in Jerusalem. They had been burned so many times by fake messiahs that nobody was more skeptical of new truth. They were traditional. They were conservative. They weren't believing anything new unless they had the evidence in order to do that. And so let's start by looking at an account of the resurrection of Jesus told by one of his early followers uh, named John. And it says in, in John, uh, his 20th chapter, towards the end of his biography that he wrote uh, about Jesus, the biography of John about the life of Jesus, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. 
Now, Mary had followed Jesus for a number of years. She had seen him perform miracles. Jesus had taught, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And yet, when she comes and sees the empty tomb, she doesn't go, Yahoo, let's start Easter. Let's do Easter together now. No, she's crying because she thinks, well, that would be impossible. I, I, I can't really believe that. So it must mean that they switched the body somewhere or something like that. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white. Now, whenever God wants somebody to believe something, he sends angels because they are big and massive and muscular and ripped and they've got flaming swords and they scare the, they scare the pants off of you. And the first thing angels always say when they show up is, don't be afraid because everybody's afraid. And so if you send angels, God says, I'll send angels. This will make her believe it. And yet even when the angels show up, uh, it's seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. She still doesn't believe it. And I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw, God says, okay, I'll send Jesus. Now, when Jesus shows up, usually that like clinches it, all right? She sees Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. She's like, okay, he looks kind of familiar, but nah, not a chance, not a chance. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Finally, she believed. She was not gullible. She was not naive. She wasn't quick to believe something that, that she was hard to believe. She was skeptical. Now we meet another real skeptic, skipping down to verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Does that sound like a gullible person to you? No, he's a skeptic. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, the skeptic, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. But he gave him the evidence in order to believe. Stop doubting. Now, this poor guy, he gets for the next 2,000 years the nickname Doubting Thomas. But I think a better nickname for him would be Skeptical Thomas. And so if you're a skeptic, if you don't believe everything you see right away, you're in good company with, with Thomas. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Now Jesus is talking to each one of us with this next phrase. He's talking to us. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Christianity was built for skeptics. You just got to ask the question, where is the weight of evidence? Now, God doesn't expect 100% faith, and you don't have to have every one of your questions answered in order to believe something or do something. I mean, if you, if you buy a new car, you don't have 100% of your questions answered. You don't know for a fact. You didn't follow it down the assembly line to know that every nut and bolt was put into place perfectly. No, you have to take part of it by faith, and yet it's a reasonable faith or beyond a reasonable faith day, uh, kind of uh, faith. How many of you have ever been on a jury? Anybody here ever been on a jury? Okay, so a few of you have been on a jury. And you know that on a jury, 
they tell you you don't have to believe 100%. You just have to believe beyond a reasonable doubt. If you've watched Law and Order, you've seen this over and over again. Uh, there's a guy in our church named Jason Anderson. And he was just elected as the district attorney for San Bernardino County. Now, San Bernardino County, I believe, is the biggest county in the entire world. He is now head of the fifth biggest law firm in the United States. His wife, Starla, that you see there, is a former district attorney. Now she's a law professor. So this couple, they know the law. And they know about uh, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, they've been defense attorneys. They've been prosecutors. And so he, he shared with me the criminal, California criminal jury instructions regarding proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And this is what it is from the California guide. Uh, if you were on a jury, this is what he would explain to you as a prosecutor or as a defense attorney. That state of affairs that leaves you with an abiding conviction of the truth of the matter. You don't have to believe 100%. You just have to have enough evidence to have an abiding conviction of the truth of the matter. And here's how he would explain it. He explained it to me, how he would explain it if he was in front of a jury in California. He'd say, okay, imagine you're at the kitchen sink and you're getting dinner ready. And say you have a swimming pool. And so your child comes in and says, um, mom, can I jump in the swimming pool before dinner? And you go, no, no, no. I can't watch you till after dinner. Don't you go in that swimming pool. About a minute later, you hear a splash. A moment after that, you see your wet child running with wet footprints right past you into the rest of the house. Now, did you see her go into the, the pool? No. Is, are there other theoretical explanations? Yes. A meteorite could have come from the sky and made the splash sound in the pool, doused her with water, and that's why she was wet as she ran by you. Is that theoretically possible? Yes. However, does the evidence lead you that possibly, probably, your child has disobeyed you? Yes. That state of affairs that leaves you with an abiding conviction of the truth of the matter. Uh, I was on the uh, jury for the great Wienerschnitzel trial of 2011. You've heard of the OJ trial. You've probably never heard of the great Wienerschnitzel. We have Wienerschnitzels in California. Anybody know what a Wienerschnitzel is? Okay, we got some. They're kind of like uh, McDonald's but with hot dogs. Now, let me just know, you got the better end of the deal because you guys have, um, oh, what are they called? They're my favorite thing here. Oh, I just, I just drew a blank as to what's the restaurant that's real old-fashioned and it makes you feel, what's that? What's that? No, no, it's, um, oh, I can't believe I just blew that. Okay, it, it's, the one, it, it's the one that makes you feel like you're in the 1950s again. What's that? Not Steak and Shake. What's that? No, Cracker Barrel. Who said Cracker Barrel? Thank you so much. You just saved my life. We just got the first Cracker Barrel in California, in Victorville, halfway between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And we're like, we're like rumors are around. Does it really exist? Does Cracker Barrel exist? We're making pilgrimages just to see with our own eyes that we have a Cracker Barrel. So anyway, the Wiener Sissel trial, I was in on this jury, and, and they bring in this guy, and they had videotape of it, uh, of this guy in the Wiener Schnitzel, two guys robbing the wiener schnitzel. And they had his pictures, clear as could be, to show to the jury. Now, just in case we missed him the first time, he robs the place again a week later in his partner. And here are the two guys a week later, clear as can be on the video cameras, the, the security cameras that are in the wiener schnitzel. Now, when we convicted the, these guys, 
is there a possibility he could have had, like, like in Mission Impossible, a fake mask on or something, and he ends up being somebody else? Sure, there's a possibility. But we convicted them believing that state of affairs that leaves you with an abiding conviction of the truth of the matter. Now, how does this apply to investigating the claims of Christ? Well, God says, if you look for the evidence, you may not have every question answered before you follow Jesus. You may not have every question answered until you get to heaven. You, you may not have everything worked out, but do you have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? God promised this in Jeremiah 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. God says, you know what? If you look for the evidence, I've left enough of my fingerprints there for you to know that it's me. There is evidence for the claims of Christ. Now, let me just tell you what's so frustrating uh, as a pastor is that I see so many young adults not considering Christianity or so many Christian young adults giving up on their Christian faith because of these little viral clips and videos on, on social media where it'll just pop up for like five minutes and attack something and then retreat before there's deeper analysis or cross-examination. It's kind of like a negative political ad. Do you have negative political ads in Indiana? I know we do in California. Why are so many political ads negative? Because they work. It works to just for 30 seconds attack your political opponent and then go back before there's any cross-examination. It's way more work to take the time and the effort to dig beneath the surface in order to get answers and better answers and more thorough uh, cross-examination. And so uh, it, it's so discouraging that people are like thinking that the Bible's not true and that Christ should not be followed simply because of these kind of attack ads, uh, these viral clips or these videos. Proverbs 18 verse 17 says, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. You ever, you know, if you've been on a jury, the first side presents their case and you're like, why are we even wasting our time being here? He's guilty, you know? Give me the electric chair, even though it was a parking offense. Just take him out, you know, deal with it. And uh, uh, let, let, let's deal with that. No, uh, then the other side comes up and they cross-examine. And when they cross-examine, you're like, oh my goodness, there's, there's another whole side to this particular thing. Or even if there is cross-examination, this is how it typically goes. There'll be a split screen on your television. And on the one side, on the side uh, defending the atheist position, will be some sophisticated British guy with a smooth British uh, accent, and uh, he will have five PhDs after his name, and he's the guy presenting the atheist position. And the other side is Bubba. Bubba representing the Christian side, Bubba from the swamp, who believes that Oprah Winfrey is the Antichrist. And you're looking at the TV and you're going, no, no, please, you know, uh, not Bubba, anybody but, but Bubba. Can it be somebody else? Can it be Ravi Zacharias? Or can it be Lee Strobel? Or can it be Sean McDowell? Or Mark Clark? Or Jay Warner Wallace? Or better yet, Josh Hoosman is who, who I want up there. That's who I want. Now, Mark Clark says that everything's ultimately a leap of faith. Everything's a leap of faith. When you got in your car to drive here today, when you sat down in your chair, it was a leap of faith to sit down in it. But he says, you run up the ramp of reason before you make the leap of faith. And so you, everything's eventually a leap of faith, but you run up the ramp of reason and the answers are there. Now, um, how many of you are left-brainers? By that, I mean you kind of lead, you're analytical, you're more rational, you kind of lead with your head, your mind. How many of you are left-brainers? Let me see your hands. Okay, great. 
this is your lucky day, okay? You, you came to church and came through the snow. Uh, this, this is your day. How many of you are right-brainers? You more lead with your heart, okay? You've only got about 18 minutes to go. Just hang with me uh, for, for 18 minutes, okay? Now, I would not be so arrogant as to think that, you know, I can convince you if you're a skeptic of Christianity to just in like 17, 18 minutes to um, believe and, and, and have your questions answered enough to the point that you can make a leap of faith. But let me just get you started on your, on your search. Just, just get you started with four questions. Just four questions. Number one, does it make more sense that something came from nothing or that something came from something or someone? Which makes, which makes the more sense? That something, that all that we see in the universe, all of us, came from nothing. Just came from nothing. Or that something came from something or from someone. Now, I just want to challenge this, and I, and I don't want to do it in an arrogant, snarky way. But, you know, the answer that the one side of atheism gives us on this is very simplistic. You're like, okay, so there was a big bang at the beginning and everything was in condensed in mass and it exploded into the universe. But who put the stuff there for the big bang to happen? Who put it there? And look, this is not a straw man argument. I've read all the atheists like Sam Harris and Letters to a Christian Nation and Richard Dawkins, uh, the, um, uh, not Richard Dawson, he's the family few guy that kissed all the girls, remember him? But Richard Dawkins, who is the, wrote The God Delusion, and basically, here's their answer to where the stuff got there to begin with. It, it, they don't literally say this, but they basically say, it is what it is. And let me encourage you, that is not a good answer. But if you say it is what it is, if you say it enough times with a British accent, everybody nods their heads and goes, wow, that sounds really smart. It is what it is. No, I'm here to tell you the emperor has no clothes. That is not a good answer. And, and what's kind of annoying, I have to admit, is that they expect us to have all kinds of perfect answers for every awkward verse in Leviticus, all right? Uh, we have to have perfect answers for every great mystery of life, like why a loving and kind God would allow a tsunami to kill hundreds of people in Indonesia. And don't get me wrong, there are good answers to that. Not perfect answers, not complete answers, but there are good answers to that, and we need to have those good answers. But they expect us to have perfect answers for those kind of things, and yet they accept the answer, it is what it is, when it comes to why we're here to begin with. Uh, George Wall is a Harvard University professor who got the Nobel Prize in biology in 1971. He said there are only two possible explanations as to how life arose here on the planet. Spontaneous generation, a rising to evolution, or a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third position. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur. But that leaves us with only one other possibility, that life came as a supernatural act of creation by God. But I can't accept that philosophically because I don't want to believe in God. Therefore, by faith, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation. Now, there's at least somebody who's honest to say it is what it is just is not an adequate answer. Now, that leads us to the second question. Does it make more sense that the design of the universe happened by random chance or by a designer? Astrophysicist uh, Fred Hoyle, uh, he's the one that formulated the theory of stellar nucleosynthesis. 
He said, he calculated the odds that all the functional proteins necessary for life might form in the place by random events. He came up with a figure of one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. That's one with 40,000 zeros after it. Since there are only 10 to the 80th, subatom- 80th power subatomic particles in the entire visible universe, he concluded that this was an outrageously small probability. Life could not have originated here on the Earth, nor does it look as though biological evolution can be explained from within an earthbound theory of life. My atheism has been greatly shaken. Now, they admitted years ago there are certain parameters, uh, things that have to be perfect in order for there to be life, uh, to, for life to, to happen. And so Carl Sagan, uh, years ago, admitted that even though he thought the earth was old and that the, uh, that the earth was um, big, it wasn't big enough, it wasn't old enough for life to happen by chance. And so he said it must have been planted here by aliens from another part in the universe where it had happened by chance. But then they've come up with more parameters over time. And now, even Richard uh, Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, he would say, well, it's still the universe is really old, but it's not old enough. It's really big, but it's not big enough for it to happen to a random chance in our universe. So it must have happened in another universe. And so he has the multiverse theory, which is that there are multiple universes. Now, there is no evidence that there's multiple universes, but he says, because I don't want to admit in a God, I believe it happened by chance in some other universe and then was brought to our universe. But even if that was the case, you still get back to problem number one, which is if it happened in another universe and was brought to our universe, still, how did the stuff for the Big Bang happen in that universe? And you're back to the original, it is what it is. Uh, Frederick Burnham, who's a science historian, said, the community of scientists is prepared to consider the idea that God created the universe a more respectable hypothesis today than at any time in the last hundred years. Charles Darwin himself said, to suppose that the eye, with so many parts all working together, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. I talked about those parameters that have to be perfect in order for there to be life. Uh, These are things like the size of our galaxy and its location. These are things like the number of moons around our planet. These are things like oxygen levels in the atmosphere. The probability of a planet anywhere in the universe fitting within all 153 parameters, and I'm sure that's an out-of-date number. They're finding new things all the time that have to be perfect in order for there to be life. But when it was 153 parameters is approximately 10 to the 194th power. The maximum possible number of planets in the universe is estimated to be 10 to the 22nd power. Thus, there's less than one chance in 10 to the 172nd power exists that even one such planet would occur anywhere in the universe. Now, you left-brainers are about to jump out of your seat and shout hallelujah. For you right-brainers, we've only got another 10 minutes. Okay, just another 10 minutes. Hang with me. So some people will say, okay, we admit that a designer made it. Uh, but, uh, but then walked away from it. So kind of wound up the clock and then walked away from it, kind of created the universe, but then walked away. That leads us to premise number three. Does it make more sense that if there is a designer, that designer doesn't communicate with us or that he chooses to communicate with us. Now, we don't need fancy quotes from uh, very intellectual people with PhDs after their name, I think, to deal with this one. I think we can be on our own on this one. Does it make sense that he created and just walk away? Or does he make sense that he created us and then he wants to communicate with us? And that leads to number four. 
If he does communicate, would he do it with no evidence that it is him, or would he give us millions of pieces of evidence that it is him that is communicating? Now, people like to think that all religions and all world philosophies can be right. And, and let me be very careful. I, I do not, oh my goodness, I don't want to come off as arrogant here. And I know that's kind of an offensive thing about Christians. But you know, it wasn't us that taught it. It was Jesus that taught us. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so I'm only sharing this out of love the way your doctor would not want to just say, pick any medicine for your condition. Uh, he or she would want to pick the right medication for your condition. That, that's why I want the best for you. I want, I want the one that will help your heart's condition, not one that may or may not work. And so people tend to think, well, they, they can just all be right. It doesn't matter. There are many paths to God. Just pick one of them. But they can't all be right because they contradict each other. Buddhism is basically atheistic. Hinduism has 10,000 gods. Uh, Islam and Christianity have just one God. We can all be wrong, but we can't all be right. We can all be wrong, but we can't all be right because we contradict each other. Now, Mark Clark is a pastor in Canada, in Vancouver, Canada, and he talks about speaking to an accountant there in Canada that really believes that truth is what you make it. You just make up your own truth. And so he said to him, well, imagine that your first grader daughter uh, comes home from, with a math test that she had done, and she writes down 2 plus 2 equals 5. And the teacher marks it correct. Would you be okay with that? And this is literally what the accountant said. If that's what is true for her, then I would be okay with it. If, that, if 2 plus 2 equals 5 is what truth is for her, then I'd be okay with it. I don't know about you, but I don't want him doing my taxes uh, uh, this April 15th. Now, let me just say this with great oh, kindness and, 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 and with humility, hopefully, and, and not come off as, as, a, as a know-it-all, but let me just say that I honestly believe this, and so I just want you to have the right information. Um, all other worldviews, philosophies, and religions, except for one, have zero objective evidence for them. Now, that doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means they have zero objective evidence. I'm not saying they're wrong. They just don't have objective evidence. They have subjective evidence. So, for example, you might study the writings of Buddha, and if it gives you greater peace, then that works for you, subjective evidence. Or maybe your life is out of control, and you read the Koran, and that helps you to organize your life, then that, that works for you. Okay, that's subjective evidence. But all of them have zero objective evidence except for one. Only one has literally millions of pieces of evidence that back it up. And that is following Christ as we find him within the Bible. Uh, there are dozens of categories of these millions of pieces of evidence. Let me just give you three of these categories. The first is that I want to mention is archaeological historical. How archaeology and history always backs up what we find within the Bible. Let me give you one example. Luke chapter 3 verse 1. Literally, in this one verse, there are 15 chances for the Bible to be wrong. Let's count them up. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonidas, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. 
15 ways that when you compare it to archaeological discoveries or to other historical sources, the Bible can be wrong. And yet that's one verse out of 31,102 verses. And here's what maybe the world's most prominent archaeologist, Dr. Nelson Gleck, a Jewish archaeologist, he discovered over 1,500 ancient sites in Palestine and in Israel. Here's what he had to say. The reviewer has spent many years in biblical archaeology and in company with his colleagues has made discoveries confirming in outline or in detail historical statements in the Bible. He is prepared to go further and say that no archaeological discovery has ever been made that contradicts or controverts historical statements in the Bible, in the scriptures. A second category is fulfilled prophecy. There are 1,817 prophecies in the Bible. Did you know that 27% of the Bible is prophecy, that is, predicting events hundreds if not thousands of years in great detail before they happen? And yet, if you take just the 300 prophecies about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, for just eight of those 300 prophecies out of the 1,817 prophecies to happen by accident is one chance in 10 to the 16th power. For 48 of those prophecies about Jesus to happen by random chance is one chance in 10 to the 157th power. And then finally, I want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the great mysteries in history is how did so many thousands of highly skeptical, conservative, traditional Jewish people become followers of Christ in Jerusalem practically overnight? Religious people don't like to change. Let me test it right now. How many of you are seated in the exact same seat you sat in last Sunday? Let me, let me see your hands. Okay. And I'm not picking on you because I always, whether I'm in Indiana or California, I always sit right there wherever I am. Re religious people, we don't, like, we don't like change. I heard a supposedly a true story, um, kind of sad, but it's kind of funny at the same time too, about a church that was arguing about whether to have drums in their worship services. And, uh, and so they were debating this, and, and they were, you know, at Mercy Road, that ship sailed a long time ago. But uh, at this church, it's a very conservative, traditional church, they were having this huge congregational debate about whether to have drums in the worship center. And one man who was against drums stood up and very angrily said, with regard to this discussion, he said, Jesus is rolling in his grave right now. And I thought to myself when I heard that story, if Jesus is rolling in his grave, we've got bigger problems than drums uh, in the worship service. Now, multiply that traditionalism or conservatism times 100. And that's how conservative Jewish people in Jerusalem were. As a matter of fact, the Bible says many priests followed Jesus. That's how conservative and traditional Jewish priests and Pharisees and the Jewish people were in Jerusalem. They would rather die than worship a man rather than God. Uh, history tells us that thousands upon thousands, literally, of Jewish people died rather than say Caesar is Lord. And yet, what happened so that overnight thousands began to say Jesus is Lord? And they did it at ground zero of where the events actually happened. Now, I believe the reason it happened is because almost everybody in Jerusalem had either seen the resurrected Jesus themselves or they knew somebody who had seen him, somebody they trusted, like a family member or a friend. J.D. Greer says, faith equals the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. 
There are a lot of things about Christianity that are hard to believe, aren't there? I mean, we, have to, we admit that, right? There are a lot of things that are hard to believe. There are hard things to believe in the Bible. There are Christian claims, uh, claims of Christians that will offend you and leave you with unanswered questions. So here's the question I just want to lovingly and, and, and from my heart and with humility ask. Here's the question. Are you willing to have those opinions and prejudices challenged? Are you open-minded enough to even consider um, the evidence uh, the unexplainable meets the undeniable. Here's the biggest decision of your life. Do you allow the evidence to overrule your objections or the things you can't understand, the unexplainable? Or do you invalidate the evidence based on your objections? Are you willing to doubt your doubts? Well, let me just finish with a really cool uh, illustration, especially if you're a baseball fan. How many here are baseball fans? Anybody? How many of you played baseball or softball? You played softball or baseball when you, when you, you were a kid? Well, they say in sports, um, and you can argue this if your favorite sport is something different, but they say the hardest thing to do in sports is to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fast or faster fastball. 90 miles an hour plus fastball. That's the hardest thing to do in all of sports. And the reason it's so hard was explained by Robert Adair, who's a Yale physicist, and he studied, he spent part of his life studying the science behind hitting a baseball. And he wrote a book called The Physics of Baseball. And let me just summarize the book in one sentence. Here's why it's so hard to hit a fastball. It's actually impossible according to the principles of physics. It takes 450 milliseconds to hit a baseball thrown 90 miles an hour. But the ball hits the catcher's mitt in 400 milliseconds. That means according to the principles of physics, it is literally impossible to explain how anybody can hit a fastball 90 miles an hour or faster. But here's the thing. You believe it can be done because you've seen it done so many times. How many of you have either on television or in person seen somebody hit a fastball 90 miles an hour or faster, okay? In Southern California, if you're an Angels fan, we've seen Mike Trout hit a home run uh, 240 times, and, and that's just home runs. That doesn't count singles or doubles or triples. You see, faith equals the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. The early followers of Jesus, they couldn't explain the resurrection of Jesus. Mary couldn't explain it. Thomas couldn't explain it. But they believed it because they had seen it. And there are so many things that are unanswered questions before you follow Christ. And there are things that seem unexplainable. But when you consider the undeniable evidence for the truthfulness of following after Christ, you've got to say the unexplainable is being overwhelmed by the undeniable evidence. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, Solomon, 3,000 years ago, said, He has made everything beautiful uh, in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. There's a reason why the stuff of this life doesn't satisfy you. It, there's a reason why your heart is restless for something more than this life. Because you weren't made just for this life. You were made for something beyond and that's why your heart is stirring. That's why you've been willing to sit here for this length of time, 35, 37 minutes. You've been willing to sit because something within your heart, you want it to be true. You sense that it might be, might be true. And here's the promise of God in Jeremiah 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's all I'm asking is just consider the evidence. Just isn't it worth it? 
because, you know, if, if, if we're wrong, well, it just means we lived a life that I've found a very fulfilling life and I die and turn to dirt. But, but what, if the, what if the atheists are wrong? What if we die and there is something beyond that? Doesn't that mean that we should at least investigate the claims and the evidence before we make a decision? And I plead with you because I love you and because God loves you. Consider the evidence. And maybe I've done an imperfect job of presenting the evidence. And maybe some of my numbers might be a little off here or there. But I hope it just demonstrates to you that there is evidence out there. The truth is out there if you search for it with all your heart. God wants to be found. He's not playing hide-and-go-seek where he doesn't want to be found. He's left evidence. He's left his fingerprints so that we can find him if we'll just dig beneath the surface and search for him. Let's just uh, pray together as the praise band comes back up. Lord, I want to pray for that person who maybe is ready to, to open their heart to you. They say, you know, Glenn... This was kind of the, 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 the last piece of evidence I needed. So yeah, I'm ready. And so would you pray with me something like this? Jesus, I want to follow you. I still have questions. I, I, I still don't have all my questions answered. I, I still have some doubt. But I believe there's enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that the weight of evidence is, is for there being uh, someone behind the something that I see in the universe, the something of me being here. There does seem to be a designer behind the design of the universe. It makes sense that that designer would want to connect with me and get to know me and communicate with me. And then it makes sense that there is this one way that seems to have the most evidence for it. And so I open my heart to you today. Or maybe you're listening or you're here, or you're listening on podcasts, or, or watching online, and you're like, you know, Glenn, I'm just not ready yet. I, I just, I, I, I'm just really starting this search. Okay, that's great. That's wonderful. Maybe you could pray with me something like this. Dear God, I'm willing to be made willing. If the evidence is there, I want to see it. I've got certain things that offend me about Christianity. I've got certain things I don't understand or objections, things that are unexplainable. But I'm willing to start a search to be willing to be made willing because of enough evidence that I can follow you beyond a reasonable doubt. So today, Lord, today, God, I start my search. Would you guide me in this search to the evidence that you have left for me to find? And I pray this in your name with a heart for you and a desire to get to know you. Amen.